Welcome to the Inside the Board Study Smarter series dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed on your exam. Hi everyone, this is Pranay, one of your Inside the Board podcast hosts, bringing you what I believe is one of our last episodes of the Step 1 Study Smarter series. This is the cardiology episode. So today, I'll be reviewing several high-yield cardiology questions. Unfortunately, I do not have a guest with me, but I promise that I will cover some important topics today. So without further ado, let's dive right in. Question number one. We have a 22-year-old woman who presents to the emergency department following a motor vehicle accident. On physical exam, her temperature is 98 degrees Fahrenheit. She has a heart rate of 124 beats per minute a blood pressure of 94 over 64 millimeters of mercury, and on physical exam, the patient is drowsy but arousable to verbal simulation. Her skin is cold, her deep tendon reflexes are normal, and her peripheral pulses are weak. Her labs are notable for a hemoglobin of 6.5 grams per deciliter. Her PT, INR, PTT, and bleeding time are all within normal limits. A pulmonary artery catheter is placed in the ICU which shows a pulmonary capillary wedge pressure of 4 millimeters of mercury and a mixed venous oxygen saturation of 58%. Which of the following changes is likely occurring in this patient? Is it A, increase in cardiac output, B, decrease in systemic vascular resistance, C, increase in blood pressure, or D, an increase in systemic vascular resistance? So, based on this history alone for this patient, they are most likely suffering from hypovolemic shock secondary to hemorrhage from the motor vehicle accident. This is supported by her tachycardia, hypotension, and anemia. Additionally, there are some other physiologic parameters that help determine the cause of the shock or the type of shock. So, one thing to look at is the pulmonary capillary wedge pressure. A normal PCWP of between 6 and 12 millimeters of mercury. So this patient is low, which further supports the diagnosis of hypovolemic shock. This patient had a PCWP of 4. So for the pathophysiology of hypovolemic shock, the problem is basically that there's not enough fluid in the pipes, pipes being the vessels or the blood vessels. This leads to decreased preload, which PCW is a marker of, and therefore lower cardiac output. The body tries to compensate for this by increasing systemic vascular resistance and heart rate. So in this question, the correct answer would be D, an increase in systemic vascular resistance. This is a good place to also review the major types of shock because they will definitely show up on your exam. Starting with hypovolemic, which we already touched on, the important physiological parameters to be aware of are PCW, cardiac output, and systemic vascular resistance. In hypovolemic shock, we have a decreased PCW, decreased cardiac output, and increased systemic vascular resistance. Etiologies for hypovolemic shock can be divided into hemorrhagic or non-hemorrhagic causes. Hemorrhagic causes include blunt or sharp trauma, postpartum hemorrhage, a GI bleed, or really anything that causes excessive blood loss. Non-hemorrhagic causes include GI losses such as vomiting or diarrhea extensive burns, or renal fluid loss. The overall goal of treatment is aggressive fluid replacement. The next important cause of shock to be aware of is cardiogenic shock, 
in this type of shock, the heart is not able to function properly for some reason or another. This reason could be an acute myocardial infarction, heart failure, a valvular dysfunction, or an arrhythmia. Because the heart is dysfunctional, there is decreased cardiac output. Because the heart cannot pump blood, a backup occurs, which increases PCWP, which again is a marker for preload. Finally, the body tries to maintain blood pressure by increasing systemic resistance. So to reiterate, we have a decreased cardiac output, increased PCWP, and increased systemic vascular resistance. Treatment for cardiogenic shock is based on the underlying etiology, such as revascularization for an acute MI. The third type of shock we're going to talk about is called obstructive shock. It is similar to cardiogenic shock in terms of cardiac output, which is also decreased, and systemic vascular resistance, which is also increased. The two differ in PCWP, which is decreased in obstructive shock. This makes sense because PCWP is a marker for preload, and in obstructive shock, there is something preventing proper return of blood to the left heart, such as a pulmonary embolism, cardiac tamponade, or a tension pneumothorax. The treatment here is simple. The obstruction needs to be removed. One thing to note about the three types of shock I described so far is that the patient will present as cold and clammy. On the other hand, in the last type of shock, distributive shock, the patient will present as warm and dry. There are many etiologies of distributive shock, but they are all characterized by decreased systemic vascular resistance. This is due to peripheral vasodilation. PCW is decreased as well because of pooling of blood in the dilated veins, and cardiac output is variable. In distributive shock secondary to sepsis or anaphylaxis, cardiac output is elevated, whereas when the distributive shock is caused by central nervous system injury, the cardiac output is decreased. So this was definitely a good amount of information to take in, but I highly recommend understanding all the concepts of shock and why different types have different physiological parameters. It will be helpful for boards and rotations. So moving on to question two, we have a 65-year-old woman with a past medical history of coronary artery disease and an inferior myocardial infarct who presents her cardiologist for her yearly follow-up. She has been asymptomatic and compliant with her medications. A repeat 12-lead electrocardiogram performed prior to the appointment shows a rhythm with regular RR intervals, a narrow QRS complex, and a PR interval of 254 milliseconds. Which of the following is the likely rhythm? Is it A, atrial fibrillation, B, first degree AV block, C, second degree AV block Mobitz type 1, or D, second degree AV block Mobitz type 2? The majority of this question stem is more or less irrelevant to the answer choices besides the second to last sentence that reports the EKG findings. The EKG is pretty standard for first degree AV block, which is a relatively normal sinus rhythm with the exception of a prolonged PR interval. The normal PR interval is between 120 and 200 milliseconds long. So this person had a PR interval of 254, which clearly points towards B, first degree AV block being the correct answer. You can also rule out the other choices because the question states that this patient has a regular RR interval. So this rules out atrial fibrillation and second degree AV block type 1, 
both of which will have irregular intervals. Additionally, there is no mention of dropped QRS complexes, which would rule out MOBITS type 1 and type 2. EKGs will show up on your exam in some form or another, whether it is in a written description, like in this question that I explained to y'all, or the test may ask you to interpret an actual 12-lead uh, EKG or rhythm strip, so you should be prepared for either. Obviously, I cannot review and recognize certain rhythms on a 12-lead with you over an audio format, but I want to take this time to talk about how questions may describe certain rhythms on the test. Since this question was about first-degree heart block, I want to quickly review the other types of heart block. So second degree heart block can be divided into Mobitz type 1 or Mobitz type 2. Mobitz type 1 is also known as a Wenke-Bach rhythm. Both are characterized by dropped beats, which the question stem should mention. Mobitz type 1 will have a progressively prolonging PR interval until the beat drops, followed by a normal PR interval, which will again progressively prolong with each beat. On the other hand, Mobitz type 2 will drop a beat every set number of beats. So for example, you can have three normal PR intervals and a QRS complex is in a row, but after the fourth P wave, there is no QRS complex and that pattern continues. In type 2, the PR interval can be normal or prolonged, but it does not progressively prolong. Finally, a third degree AV block is the result of a total blockage of atrial impulses traveling to the ventricles. Therefore, the atrium ventricles will be beating independently. On an EKG, this can look confusing, but you will be able to see P waves marching along at the regular rate and wide complex QRS complexes beating at a regular rate. They just won't be beating at the same rate and you can see them intersect at various points on the EKG. The P wave will be beating a lot faster than the QRS complex. Moving on to question number three. We have a 65-year-old man who presents to the emergency department with substernal chest pain that started while he was playing cards. The pain does not respond to nitroglycerin. He has a past medical history of hypertension, type 2 diabetes mellitus, hyperlipidemia, and COPD. On physical examination, his blood pressure is 166 over 78 millimeters of mercury, a heart rate of 88 beats per minute, and an oxygen saturation of 98%. An electrocardiogram shows ST elevations in leads 1 and AVL and ST segment depressions in leads 2, 3, and AVF. Which of the following arteries is likely blocked and causing this patient's myocardial infarction? Is it A, the right coronary artery, B, the posterior descending artery, C, the left anterior descending artery, or D, the left circumflex artery? Like the previous question, the most important sentence in this stem is the second to last sentence that holds the EKG findings. This may be a simple question, but medical students can get tripped up if they don't pay attention to what the question is actually asking, so I think it's worth it to quickly review the arteries and EKG findings that correlate with different types of MIs. So this patient has ST elevation in leads 1 and AVL, which should clue you in that this is a lateral wall infarction. This type of infarction is caused by a blockage in the left circumflex artery. So the answer is D, left circumflex artery. A lateral wall infarction can also have reciprocal ST depressions in leads 2, 3, and AVF, which can trick students if they aren't paying attention because all they see is ST segment changes in those leads. 
So be sure to pay attention where the elevations are and the depressions are. So in the case that there were ST elevations in leads 2, 3, and AVF, the patient would have had an inferior myocardial infarction. This is caused by a blockage in the right coronary artery. The left anterior descending artery is the most commonly implicated artery in MIs. It can cause an anteroseptal infarct, which would have ST segment elevations in V1 and 2, or an anteroapical infarct, which would have ST segment elevations in V3 and V4. A blockage in the posterior descending artery can cause a posterior infarct, which will cause ST segment elevations in V7 through V9, which can only be seen on a special right-sided EKG. A clue, though, on a normal EKG is, is the presence of ST segment depressions in leads V1 through 3 with tall R waves. So moving on to question 4, we have a 64-year-old man who is presenting to the emergency department with moderate chest pain with radiation to his jaw that occurred earlier this morning. He had been walking when it happened. His vital signs are notable for a blood pressure of 90 over 79 millimeters of mercury in his right arm and 95 over 75 millimeters of mercury in his left arm. His EKG and troponins were within normal limits. Which of the following will probably be heard on cardiovascular examination? Is it A, a holosystolic murmur? B, crescendo-decrescendo systolic ejection murmur? C, a late systolic crescendo murmur? Or D, a diastolic descending murmur? So based on the answer choices, Clearly, this question is trying to determine what kind of murmur this patient has. There are two big clues that should help you out. One is the presenting symptom of chest pain, and the other is the patient's blood pressure. Both should help you determine that this is aortic stenosis. So aortic stenosis can present with syncope, angina, or dyspnea. Out of the four major murmurs, aortic stenosis, aortic regurgitation, mitral stenosis, and mitral regurgitation, Aortic stenosis is the most commonly associated with angina as the presenting symptom. The other clue is the patient's blood pressure. This should help because only aortic stenosis presents with a narrowed pulse pressure. Pulse pressure is the difference between the systolic and diastolic blood pressures. Now that you know it's an aortic stenosis murmur, the question should be pretty simple. The answer would be B, a crescendo-decrescendo systolic ejection murmur. The other answer choices describe murmurs that you should recognize as well. A holosystolic murmur can be either a mitral or tricuspid regurgitation murmur or a ventricular septal defect. A mitral tricuspid regurgitation murmur is also described as a blowing murmur, whereas the latter ventricular septal defect is described as harsh. A late systolic crescendo murmur is describing mitral valve prolapse. This murmur will also have a mid-systolic click. Finally, a diastolic descending murmur is classically aortic regurgitation. Mitral stenosis is also a diastolic murmur, but is characterized by an opening snap. For question number 5, we have a 46-year-old woman presenting with worsening shortness of breath, cough, and concurrent joint pain in her elbows, knees, and wrists. The patient states that she has had a history of severe nasal pressure, sinus pressure, and severe nosebleeds that occur several times a month. Her urine dipstick is positive for 1 plus blood and 2 plus protein. 
for creatinine is elevated at 1.9 milligrams per deciliter. Chest x-ray shows bilateral opacities. Which of the following is most likely present in this patient? Is it A, antineutrophil cytoplasmic antibodies recognizing myeloperoxidase? B, antineutrophil cytoplasmic antibodies recognizing proteinase 3? C, antibodies recognizing nuclear RNA binding proteins? Or D, antibodies recognizing cyclic relinated peptide? So this patient is exhibiting symptoms of granulomatosis with polyangitis, which is characterized by a triad of upper respiratory symptoms, such as nasal perforation, chronic sinusitis, or otitis media, lower respiratory symptoms, such as hemoptysis, cough, and shortness of breath, and renal symptoms, such as hematuria and red blood cell cast. It is extremely board relevant and high yield to know the serum findings for patients with these vasculitis. For patients with granulomatosis with polyangitis, they are positive for anti-proteinase 3 antibodies, also known as PR3-ONCA, the ONCA standing for antineutrophil cytoplasmic antibodies. This is important to know because other types of vasculitis can present similarly, but the antibodies found in the serum will be different, and this will be a way that you can differentiate between diseases. So that's the last question I had to go over with you guys today for this cardiology episode of the Step 1 Study Smarter series. I know it is a little bit on the shorter side, but hopefully I covered some high-yield topics for you. I think the things in this episode will definitely show up on your board, so go read up on them and review a little bit more about them if necessary. Thank you everyone for listening. 